Tennis is one of the most popular sports around the world and there are plenty of people out there betting on it. This podcast gives you an edge over the market thanks to in-depth analysis from our expert guests. Welcome to Advantage Betters. Hello and welcome to Advantage Betters, the show here to help you prepare for every Grand Slam in the tennis calendar and of course find any betting value that might be on offer in the market. We're a week away from the Australian Open and getting close so still plenty of time to analyse the odds and get some general betting advice and thankfully we've got two true experts in their field on today. First up is a tennis t- tennis analyst and, and long-time pinnacle contributor Dan Weston. How are you Dan? Yeah I'm good Ben, how are you? Yeah I'm, I'm really well um, and we've also got a sports handicapper, co-host of the brilliant Deep Dive podcast, someone who was getting into the intro music there I think a little bit Drew. <laughs> How's things going? Oh, it's going great, man. This is so exciting to finally have real tennis back. This is going to be a great week. If you just look up and down, there's, there is fascinating matchups. We're going to get to see um, some great tennis this week in the run-up to the Australian Open next week. And, you know, normally, this, n- normally the Australian Open is happening in January. And this year it's moved back in the calendar a little bit, which to me is a huge relief. I, I cannot, could not be happier that it doesn't cross over with NFL playoffs and NBA going full steam. Um, it's kind of in the exact sweet spot of a, of a time when the ca- sports betting calendar is kind of quiet. So this is, this is awesome this year for sure. I can't, cannot wait for it. Yeah, nice uh, transition, I guess, from you for for Super Bowl into the Australian Open. Dan, is it is it something you've kind of been waiting for over the Christmas period and, and start of the new year? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, with the kind of different time time zone uh, issues to Drew, for example, I I I quite like the new season. I always kind of describe it as like the yeah, sort of first day at school again kind of thing, you know. And um, yeah, I I missed it when it. You know, we had the first week and then we had the kind of two or three week gap when they played the qualities and the um, players quarantined in, in Melbourne as well. So it kind of is a bit sort of stop start so far this year. So I'm, I'm glad we've kind of kicked into some massive tournaments this week with pretty much everyone playing who's going to be in the draw at least one match as well. So so that's really good in terms of starting to try and get some kind of form line on, on, on the players where, you know, uh, Sometimes players go into the slams cold sometimes. So these circumstances this year, maybe it's a little bit more advantageous for us than, than it sometimes can be, could have been the case in the past. Yeah, I mean, we'll, what we'll do is we'll dive into the, the Australian Open in a little bit. And as you said, we've, we've had some events to, to kind of sink our teeth into already this season. But before we do all of that, let's take a little bit of kind of a rewind and, and maybe talk about the the weird season that we had last year. Obviously, with everything going on, there was there was limited action. Um, so I'd like to know, kind of generally speaking, Dan, from your perspective, how was the the year of 2020 from a tennis betting perspective? Did, did you learn anything new? What was it like? Yeah, for, I think the most overriding thing for me was that it was very, very tricky and and. I think that a lot of caution needed to be given generally because, you know, we had a full season pretty much until the start of March and then only really got back into action towards the beginning of August. And we had no real clue about players' levels coming out of lockdown. It was incredibly difficult to understand which players were going to come out well and which players didn't. And then we saw some kind of randomish players just suddenly ex- explode into high levels. So give me a couple of examples like Jennifer Brady on hard courts, uh, Pironkova who who had about three years off tour and, and then suddenly suddenly really produced some superb results, which which was something I didn't see coming at all. Um, so that was quite difficult to predict some, some sort of those, those random players just getting to the forefront and beating top players as well on occasions. Um, but for me also, the, the numbers issue was a big problem because we didn't really have good relevant sample sizes, probably for the first time really, that I've been dealing with tennis data in over quite a few years now. Um, that was a big problem for me. So the question is, what numbers do you treat as relevant? Do you go longer sample size in terms of surfaces? Do you go shorter sample sizes in terms of, but look at all surfaces and look at try and look at up players on an upward and downward curve. There was a lot of challenges that I felt were really difficult and unique to 2020 that that made me want to be quite cautious generally. Um, the other kind of takeaway that I think as well is that we talked about, about random players just suddenly becoming good for 
which was very difficult to predict. But also, I think young players really come to the fore a little bit more and oftentimes came out of lockdown stronger than, than the veterans. And I think that's that's probably been the case in football as well, soccer in, in, in the UK as well. A lot of younger players have really started to to blossom towards the, sort of the end of 2020 and start of 2021. Where, where, whereas older players, maybe that's not such, such the case. Is that motivation thing? Is it a rust rustiness thing? I don't know, but it just kind of seems to be a thing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. The the motivation, I think, the older they get, the the, the less inclined you may be to to kind of push yourself out there and just and kind of stay comfortable. But um, Drew, same question for you, I guess. Someone who, I mean, the NFL season was okay because you, you it was right in that window that was missed anyway. But tennis wise, how hard were you hit by it, and and what did you learn? Uh, overall, I wouldn't. It it didn't. It wasn't great. Obviously, not having the entire European clay swing. I really enjoy and typically do pretty well week in week out through that swing. So the fact that we really didn't get, you know, as much tennis through the, you know, th- when when thing when sports were effectively canceled, um, that was tough. And Dan's point about sample size and what to do with data is was very relevant. Um, yeah, it, you you had you had to kind of have an entire layer in your handicap where you were doing a very fairly qualitative assessment of just player form, and you know if you if you were carefully keeping track of the up and coming stars, you know the Iga Swiatek's, you know like you know the the some of the players who truly um, you know showed up and looked like new players you you really could not have used any kind of um you know elo based assessment of Iga Swiatek's number to to you know to true tr- you know to correctly price her in any of her french open matches um and yeah so there was there was an entire layer of uh, kind of figuring it out on the fly using a lot of eye tests you know using a lot of kind of networking tools and people who had seen a lot of the tennis being played talking to them and kind of getting gauging opinions um the market i felt like was a little bit soft um at the at uh, both the the u.s open and the french open early on because there was so much qualitative uh aspect to the handicap um but overall the season went well I, i think i my couple of my biggest positions came through um in the u.s open uh the getting Medvedev out of the third quarter uh, at a very favorable price was one of my biggest tennis plays of the last several years. And that was um, pretty, I think he, he went through without even dropping his set in that one. So I was pretty excited. And then just for, as a tennis fan, seeing Dominic team finally take a, a major, you know, a, a slam title is huge because we've lived in this world for so long where there's really only three potential winners in any given men's slam and now there's two because Federer is really not looking like he's going to be part of the equation here in 2021 maybe beyond uh and so it was important i think to have another kind of another you know young middle tier guy kind of throw his hat in the ring that oh no i'm i'm slam caliber now and i have one you can't say that you know i have never won a slam before so you know granted he didn't necessarily slay any true um, champions along the way, he, but you know we've seen him beat Djokovic at many times in slams in the past. We've seen him beat Nadal at this Australian Open last year. Um, so I think it's pretty exciting to have another guy in in the mix who's truly slam worthy. And um, that was probably on the men's side at least the best possible outcome we could have had in 2021 or 2020, to be honest. And I guess the it, it kind of raises the question. You both said there you, you face challenges, and whether that's kind of data wise or, or whatever it might be. Obviously, it's it's kind of a level level playing field because everyone in the market is going to have those those same struggles. So, was it something yeah. that you did? Either of you kind of try and spin it and really attack the market and take advantage of it, or, or were you just on that cautious side and, and more wary and, and kind of getting hurt? Yeah, I, I was well more cautious. I did not feel like I had a very confident handicap going in match by match for sure. Um, but, uh, I, it, I, it did, I think, open up better opportunities to attack futures markets. And, um, yeah, my portfolio looked, looks very different than a normal tennis season in terms of how I was waiting match betting versus futures betting last year. And what about yourself, Dan? Yeah, it's pretty similar, really. I said about the caution before regarding numbers, and I think that that that, that definitely translated into 
to the way that you might approach the markets as well. I mean, it, it's so difficult to really have a confident lean towards towards players on a sort of match-by-match basis um, when you don't have a lot of recent numbers or relevant numbers. And also sometimes you think, oh, well, is this price too good to be true? Um, does the market know more than me kind of thing? But, you know, perhaps you wouldn't have those doubts in normal circumstances, but given these unique set of circumstances, you think, mm, so kind of second-guess yourself a little bit sometimes So. Well, you've both you've both mentioned uh, a couple of players. So, if you do look back now and you're you're thinking ahead to to this season, who is on that that kind of watch list, or who are the players that perhaps you're mm. you're digging around into their data a little bit more than perhaps you might have done had we not seen that that sort of uplift in their performance? And um, Drew, I'll, I'll start with you on that one. A sort of watch list for 2021, if you will. Yeah. So at the very top. Um of the men's tour for sure. I'm curious if Andre Rublev can take another step forward. Um, he had moments last year that were superlative. He showed the potential that I think we all expect, which is this guy can be a top four player for a long time. And it's it will be important to see him take some st- meaningful steps forwards this year in in slam opportunities. Um, I think, you know, he, he, he has the class. He can do it. And I, he's absolutely somebody that I think you're going to see take home probably three, you know, kind of mid-tier titles this year. He'll, he'll take home a couple of 500s and maybe win uh, a Masters would be kind of the read I have on his season. But it's potential that he could, he could surpass that for sure. He could, he could absolutely make a run at one of these slams because he's got the goods. Um, it'll be interesting to see if he puts any additional tools in his chest and, and or gets you know, for things have to are going to have to break right for him. You know, he's going to have to get the right part of the draw. He's going to have to miss out on, uh, you know, joke. He's going to need Djokovic to get, uh, you know, you know, uh, DQ'd for hitting a linesman or something crazy. But you know, it could it could happen. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, Rublev for sure is somebody I'm excited to see. Demon Hour is another young player who should take a meaningful step forward that I'm excited to see. Uh, Yannick Sinner uh, was outstanding through a handful of his matches in the at the French Open. He's got the quality uh, that he could make a name for himself this year, finishing the top say you know, probably finishing the, he, he may be fringe top 10 by the end of the season if they get all of the clay tournaments played because his, his clay game is pretty superlative. Um, and then, you know, I'm expecting to see a lot of the older players, you know, really, it's sadly, probably not uh, do much, you know. So this is this is a transitioning year, I would I would say. Um, I'm not expecting, you know, the Vavrinkas to truly compete in this, at the slam level. Um, I doubt we see uh, Federer play this year, although maybe he plays Wimbledon. It's 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 not uh, looking like a great year for the uh, for the older players. So uh, I do think it is pretty important to circle some of these young guys who have the potential to to uh, to really make a name for themselves and win some titles. And Dan, I don't think you're uh, you're putting the possibility of getting disqualified for hitting a line judge into your model. But what, what I do know about you is you. You like Rublev. I think you've talked him up for a little while, year on yeah. year, as he's kind of progressed. So I'm assuming you're you're in the same camp as Drew with that. Yeah, so very similar in terms of the names that, that Drew mentioned as well. So Rublev won five titles last year, which I don't think many people foresaw before the start of, of 2020. And in, in a shortened season as well, that, that really is some achievement. Um, but he's someone I'm definitely looking to kick on and get towards that sort of top top four, top five, potentially. Um, you know, as, as also Drew said, is someone I think could yeah, be ballpark top ten-ish by the end of the year, um, with with if he kicks on nicely, Domenor is someone I had massive hopes for before the start of last season, but probably didn't kick on as much as I thought he would have done. But I still retain quite quite high hopes for him on hard courts in particular. A um, couple of other players, it's an unoriginal take, but um, I'm really looking forward to seeing Daniel Medvedev build on last year as well because his numbers now are getting not far off elite level and with with Djokovic finishing last year in fairly mediocre style and, and Nadal having those typical injury problems as well I think the, the, the door is half ajar for, for Medvedev to, to break up the, the uh, remaining traditional elite two if you like uh, and, and really put his stamp on the tour this year uh, and, and moving forward as well as being almost the player to beat, the up and coming player to beat as as, as the years progress in the future. A couple of younger players who I'm looking to see who are lower ranked than, than the guys we've discussed so far. Um, Sebastian Corda, who, who did well already in Delray Beach, 
um, is someone that I've got real high hopes for. Comes from a family with great sporting pedigree as well, with his, his dad, a former slam winner, and his sister doing very, very well on the um, LPGA tour as well in golf. Uh, and um, also Lorenzo Musetti, particularly on clay, I think could be someone who picks up some 250 titles, for example, on clay, uh, and maybe could get to the latter stages of a 500 or even a Masters, like quarterfinal of a Masters or something like that would be really good progress for him in 2021 as well. And both of you have, have referenced on the, the men's side that, that sort of elite bracket that, that people are trying to sort of break into. It's not, it hasn't really been the case on the women's side for a while. And it's, I mean, it's event to event. It's such a wide open field and yeah. no one's really kind of grabbed that opportunity. So is there, I mean, it's so difficult to say who's going to emerge as that sort of elite player. Is, is there maybe someone that you could see sort of making their way into that sort of tier of sort of 10 women that are at the top of the game? I honestly can't tell you from tournament to tournament who's going to be the one. It's crazy. It's almost like two different sports when you're doing the futures outright market handicap in these. You know, you it's it's like it's like yeah, you have two or three true contenders in any man's slam, and in every women's, it's like twenty five, and <laughs> it's 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 exciting. It absolutely makes it entertaining, um, and the match by match quality, especially earlier in slams, you catch some matches where you just happen to have two women who truly could win it all fight face off in round two, round three. Like it's very, uh, very high quality tennis being played on the women's side right now. And I think actually, if you kind of go back over the last probably. Uh, 12, 16 slams, and you just said which was more entertaining between the men's and women's. The women's probably 12 out of the last 16 was clearly the more entertaining, you know, viewer experience from you know beginning to end. Um, but yeah, it's it's you know there there for sure are kind of more clear, in my opinion, peaks and valleys in terms of player performance over the course of the year on the women's side. Less consistency maybe, um, and you know, kind of capturing the the right player at the right time. You know, who has the goods is is pretty important. Um, you know, women last year like Sophia Kennan, who emerged in the uh, at the Australian Open, um, you know, had other parts of her calendar which were very unimpressive. You know, and it's it, and y y there are. Um, we're going to see um, BB Andreescu back this year, which is exciting. I think the tennis world missed her last year. Um, and you know, I'm excited to see the quality of play that she presents. Um, obviously, uh, Sabalenka has taken an enormous step forward in her game, and it's going to be exciting to see if she can actually find major success for the first time. Um, so there are, yeah, there are, there's a lot of potential. If, if you told me, who is going to even end the year ranked world number one in the women's side? I would probably give you 10 names. I seriously, it could be one of any 10, which is yeah, crazy. great. Great from a fan perspective, not so much from a, a prediction or, or betting perspective, but, but Dan, is there anyone that if, if Drew pressed you on that, who's going to be number one or who would you sort of say yeah. could be one to watch? I completely agree with everything that Drew said. I mean, like you, you can't pick a name and say, okay, well, I really, really think that they've got a great chance of getting getting to number one. And I think that's the beauty of the the women's game, sort of post peak Serena Williams, if you like, because we we've got the, every tournament. You know, there's two dozen or more players who could go and have a justifiable case for for reaching the latter stages with confidence, and. and as he, as he says, 25, 30 players can go into the Australian Open and think, well, do you know what? I could get to quarterfinals or, or better in this particular tournament. They're really, there's just so much quality and also a really nice level playing field in, in, in the women's game right now, which is obviously the complete opposite to to men. Um, so, yeah, and Sabalenka, Drew, Drew, Drew mentioned earlier, she's now like 15 unbeaten, finished last year with a couple of titles as well. So I think that she's a player that the outright market could get on side real quickly in, if she, if she, if she um, starts the tournament well. She's gonna, she could easily drop in price quite quickly, I think, given that sort of recency bias. Uh, uh, and, and I think the market will, 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 will latch on to that. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Azarenka can can maintain that progress after after rapidly improving after the, after the tour resumed as well, um, Western Southern title and, and US Open final as well. And I'm just really looking forward to seeing Igor Swiatek go go get back on on tour on a hard court as well because I think at the moment 
I've pegged her as something of a clay court specialist right now. So so I want to see her perform well on other surfaces as well and sort of back back up that that the great numbers that she's got on clay. You know, I've pegged her as a player of high potential for a couple of years, but even I was shocked to see see that run at the French Open. So so that there's there's a you know that's something that I'm really looking forward to seeing her do. If she can, if she can exhibit like a, say, a top 10 level on, on hard court and be one of the best players on tour on clay, then the future is going to be really bright for her as well. Well, I think it's, it's obviously great to, to kind of get some names and thoughts about sort of who you guys are thinking could sort of develop this year. And we'll talk about it specifically to the Australian open as well about the, the odds and who you think might be a, a good play, but what, the reason we do these kind of shows is it's not to, to spoon feed people that, that go and bet on this. It's more about the kind of thought process behind it. So you two, you obviously put a, a lot of time into the handicapping to, to kind of get to your numbers and get to your players. So for those listening now that we're, we're not going to go tell them who to bet on, if, how to bet is probably the more important thing and things to think about. So I'll open the floor and just maybe some some kind of do's and don'ts of, of tennis betting that, that, that you two abide by. Okay. Well, I think just to piggyback on what Dan was just saying, <laughs> when you're entering the futures market on a slam, it's a fun way to play it. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, if you enjoy, say, the March Madness sort of bracket style, like, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, that, that sort of, you know, idea of a tournament is you get one of those in tennis every week. And the slam is the most fun of them because you have to win seven matches to do it and you have 128 player field. And in general, the futures market is ripe for opportunities. So it's a really fun way to play these slams. Uh, and to piggyback on Dan's point, you are almost always trying to make a play on a, on a player whose market number is going to get shorter relatively quickly, right? You're not looking at a futures market and saying, I'm going to predict the winner. We're going to take this player or this player or even these three. Right, you realistically are looking for prices that are going to become much shorter over the course of the two weeks, and there are two ways that a player wins a slam. You know, they do the hard work themselves; they get a tough draw and they take out the other contenders on their way, or they happen to be on a part of the draw without the tough players, and you can let chaos play off in one quarter, you know, or the other, and your player has a relatively kind of favorable road just based on matchup, or you know, like you'll find certain quarters of the draw. Where okay, we're on a fa we're on a uh, you know a, a fast a hard court here in Melbourne, and this particular quarter happens to be you know the ranked players are all clay specialists, and their ranking is born out of clay success, and you know their own you know the ranked players may be all uh, relatively soft in one portion or the other, and provide a favorable path to a late you know to a late round appearance for some of these players, and I think so so price shopping is obviously important at market entry you know when you know you're you're making a play knowing that this number is going to only going to go one way on you um, is probably the name of the game in the futures market uh, and then um, you know what you're doing game by game should have virtually no correlation to the way that you're attacking the futures market you shouldn't necessarily be afraid to make a play on a player if you see value even though you have a future and and vice versa um and you know if you're making a futures play on anyone that's in the 10 to 1 range you need them realistically to get to the semifinals to materialize real hedging value out of it you know don't you know don't don't play into the futures market thinking okay how soon can i hedge this you know you know realistically you want to you know expect to get to the quarterfinals or semifinals before you uh, can realize true value out of those plays. Uh, and then if you're in this into someone in the 50 to 100 to one range, they real you realistically need them to get to the quarters uh, to materialize value out of that. And so sometimes it's more favorable to attack the, the um, market of who's going to win a given quarter as opposed to who's going to win outright. Uh, winning outright, especially on the men's side, is not an easy task when you're a long shot. I don't think we've had a true long shot win on the men's side in, um, I'm going to guess it's been at least 80 slams since we had a real long shot on the men's side win. Um, so any of those plays, you need to be making those bets, expecting that it's going to get a lot shorter and you're going to take your liability out, uh, you know, take your equity out in some way besides seeing that title you know future actually cash so um those are sort of the the kind of big picture macro level thoughts that go into my head looking at the futures market at least and that's kind of where we are at least now for the australian open in terms of my process so uh, i'll leave some of the match by match thoughts up to dan yeah so i mean drew's been really really thorough in terms of what, how he would approach the outright market futures and 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 that i think that's a really good illustration of of the research that that 
a top level better will do in advance of tournaments to to try and yield profit on a regular basis and and I think that's the really broad point in terms of advice that, to give to you know someone who wants to to be better at, 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 what, at what they what what they do and that is you know the the fact is is that there's people who are putting a ton of time and effort and resources into trying to beat the market there's people running all sorts of detailed models and people who watch matches day in day out there's various approaches to this but what I'm trying to say is is that if you don't perform that in-depth research or you don't put the effort in full stop, then you're probably not going to beat the market because if there's people who do do it, then if you don't do it, then you're giving them an edge straight away. Never a truer word spoken, Dan. I think that applies to each and everything you bet on pretty much. So yeah, yeah. Some, some really good advice. Um, is there? Do you think there's any sort of common misconceptions i mean i'm sure you guys must be flooded with dms on twitter and stuff like that for people asking for advice and whatnot is there is there some common things that you see that people are overestimating or, or overvaluing that, that that don't really matter that much oh man that's a really good question um i'm sure there are people out there who think it's as simple as what surface is this? This player is good on this surface and they don't realize that of course the market price reflects that. Um, so there's almost certainly some people who are, who will use what they think is a shortcut for quality, you know, for just for the, you know, the, the, the surface is probably the first thing that comes to any person's mind who's doing a quick handicap and, Oh, I got a good, somebody good on hard going against somebody who's good on clay. Uh, obviously this is on hard. I'm going to bet the guy that's, you know, that's the better hardcore player, uh, and realizing, okay, well there, obviously that's going to be reflected in the price in some way. Um, that's probably a, a pretty common shortcut that people are making a quick bet just based on surface. And in reality, there's, there's almost certainly, um, you need to have something more than that. Uh, I would also say, um, you know, the there people are very often fooled by recency bias, as Dan kind of brought it up earlier. Um, you know, there's momentum, market momentum for certain players who are doing well, who are rewarding betters. They'll go back to the well over and over and over again, continuing to bet that player uh, until they eventually <laughs> lose. And so you will see market momentum for sure. Um, it's not as clear as like, okay, well, there's always going to be a premium betting the Lakers in the NBA because there's always a premium betting the Lakers it's but it's but there will be players who for sure um, generate market uh, support pretty quickly just based on quality of performance and that can that can that can go both ways um, I think fatigue is often under uh, handicapped to a degree especially if you can find micro uh, examples of where fatigue may matter more um, for sure it matters for different players in terms of how they play the game for sure, it matters different players in terms of, you know, okay, well, did they came off a five-set match? Well, was it in the middle of the day in the Melbourne sun or was it at night under the roof, right? You know, I mean, like there's for sure there is different quality of kind of damage that's accrued over the course of a slam. Uh, best of five tennis is brutal. So it's very, very, uh, it's, it's long, hard matches. And oftentimes it's under um weighted in my opinion in forward sense of how long and how hard the previous match was um but uh yeah that I, it's there's not a, a clear obvious okay people are making this simple mistake often that you can capitalize on it on the other way around for sure i mean the market is very very uh, efficient in general and if your numbers are way off what you're seeing in a given match there's a reason <laughs> you need to get to the bottom of it <laughs> Well, I guess one of the one of the things you mentioned there, Drew, was the the court surface, which is uh, clearly a very very straightforward go to for a lot of people. And Dan, I know uh, when you sort of talk about things, a lot of the time you'll mention conditions. And I think it's important to maybe let people or, or kind of educate people around the fact that it's one, it's not just the court that that's played on; it's the weather that's there, and and even that no two hard courts are the same. Even clay mm -hmm. courts, you can get very different clay courts. So maybe Dan, you can sort of elaborate a little bit about the importance of conditions surface and, and how they mix together yeah definitely so i think that what drew said about you know a lot of sort of casual betters if you like adopting that oh it's a hard court 
this person's good on hard court versus that person who's bad on clay court. Well, that that's a really good example of what I was saying earlier about how you won't beat the market if you don't put the research in that other people are putting in. And I think that it's it's really important for people to realise that that these courts don't play the same. So some yeah, you know, there's different court manufacturers, there's different balls, there's different climatic conditions, and all these variables go into uh, creating yeah different conditions from tournament to tournament. And I think at least a good starting point is to try and work out which tournaments generally historically have quicker or slower conditions, and also which players perform well in faster and slower conditions as well. So, for example, Drew said earlier, and I agree with him, about um, the Australian Open has you know fairly quick conditions for a hard court. And someone like, for example, in the women's tournament, Ekaterina Alexandrova is a real fast condition specialist. So... Does that give her an edge over someone who who is a good hard quarter, but perhaps prefers conditions a little bit slower? So, so that that's just one example of that. But understanding those nuances, I think, is 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 really really important. Um, also, kind of you mentioned earlier about sort of people asking for advice and stuff and messaging you asking for advice. And I think that the couple of things that I I pick up on a lot from people is. Poor bankroll management is is something that that's really really key. So you know, let's say for sake of argument, you had this amazing ideal world where you had like I don't know an eight to ten percent implied edge on every single bet that you did. Well, if you're putting a half of your bankroll on every single bet that you do, even with that edge, there's a really good chance that you're going to go bust because it doesn't take much variance for for that to that to happen you've got to have a really good start otherwise you're gonna you're gonna be in big trouble so having that that bankroll management is is very very important uh for for a novice better or someone looking to take things more seriously because they otherwise if you don't have good financial management then you're in big trouble from the start and along those lines as well like the Trying to avoid putting emotion into the decision-making process as well is is really key. So I'll give you a good example of some context there. I mean, I, I've had like someone message me before and said, you know, I think I might have said that to bet against bet on someone against Federer, and they're like, how, how can you bet against Federer? The guy's a legend, or something like that. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, because. That's what the numbers say. That's what that's where I'm at right now. And you know, I couldn't care less about this guy who's won like I don't know how many he's won these days, but like, you know, twenty Grand Slam titles or something like that. I'm looking at the match that's in the here and the now. You know, his reputation means nothing in that in that point at that point in time. So, you know, do you what do you you've got to avoid not betting against someone, but you've also got to avoid betting on someone because he's your favourite player or something like that as well. There's the just this basic discipline and um, re- removing emotion and almost, I guess, to some extent, treating player, it, instead of looking at, it, say, Djokovic v Federer, look at it as player X v player Y and uh, and not bringing the names into the equation, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Real quick to add to the bankroll management part of it, it's, there's a natural funneling of less and less matches as the tournament goes on. You know, this is obvious, right? <clears throat> but if you're not doing well early on, the idea of oh man, I need to, you know, I need to up my stakes in these ones to catch up, or you know, it, or the fact that there are fewer matches, but you're like, well, I want to get a bet down anyway. But maybe there's, but probably not an edge if it's you know, you're late in a tournament and it's Nadal versus Djokovic. The market knows exactly how to price that. It's yeah. happened. It's happened a hundred times. You know, there's this is not a you know this. I you want me to guess what the number was? I I, I can get within a few cents um, because it's it's happened so often, right? But there because of sort of the nature of the tournament where there are fewer and fewer matches, the attention gets up as you get later in the tournament. So sometimes people will drop in and they'll be like, "Well, do you have a tip?" I mean, this is the quarterfinals. Like, it's is exciting. I'm gonna watch this. You know, there for sure. Almost always match by match, you're going to find bigger edges earlier in the tournament because there are more matches to pick from. And, you know, you can definitely get yourself into trouble either if you're winning or losing early, just based on the nature of the, you know, the sort of the decreasing sample. And just to to your point, Dan, I think if anyone out there 
doubt the the level of research or, or how granular people get in their analysis you as you were talking I, I was reminded of an article Jonathan Brikey wrote for Pinnacle where he looked at was it Roland Garros changed the balls and it was this yeah. in-depth analysis of sort of the impact that potentially that could have on on points and stuff yeah like that. So that great every every year every slam there's some macro stuff like that that you can be contrarian on if you wanted it because it's not it's not ever it's a lot of it is speculative and the ball was a big one people thought and i was i i was tentative getting involved with nadal at roland garros because of the two factors the ball changed and the weather was different and i was a little spooked i was like man what if he can't get the same top spin on his shots you know like oh there's there's a real chance that he's vulnerable <laughs> no he was he was as good as he always is because it's you know he absolutely you know owns every aspect of everyone's game on clay because of his style and it didn't matter that they changed the balls really i mean maybe i get i i looked at one point about what his spin rate was like with the damper weather and with the less fuzzy balls and it was it was within margin of error of what he's always done at you know on on Chatrier. So that the, that stuff I, I forgot about that. But for sure, there are macro levels uh, kind of thoughts that the market I think builds into pricing at the at the onset of some of these tournaments that just never manifests. Uh, was it last year that there was just massive wildfires going on in Melbourne and the air quality was bad and people were like, well, Djokovic has you know potential. He's had breathing issues in the past. You know, he's dealt with asthma and things when he was younger. Maybe he's vulnerable at the Australian Open and then you know he wins without dropping a set or something <laughs> so it's it you know the, therefore sure are macro things like that that you will read and see and hear people kind of you know write about because they need something they need to create some content you know people are interested and they want to read and, and have some macro ideas and a lot of times you can go you can you can probably fairly go contrarian on that stuff and do fine i and wouldn't be surprised i think one of the one of the things you mentioned there drew was the the weather and and kind of reading into that and now I, we were kind of chatting a little bit before we started hitting record i can't i think you might have mentioned it at the top of the show as well but obviously where we're at in the calendar and the fact that the australian opens a little bit longer what what does that mean for you in terms of how to approach things for this event mm. okay so my general two cents handicapping the australian open when we get started and normal year it is the it's usually the third week in january is the start of the tournament there has usually been a very clear you know normal tennis year preceding it and the normal tennis year that precedes it is always interesting to me because it has sort of a few phases right at early early in the year you kind you you things are a little chaotic they're a little random some very good players completely stink and some very, you know, some very suspect players from the previous year burst out, come out of nowhere. You know, some of the biggest upsets that I've ever seen in life in tennis have happened at the Australian Open. Uh, Dennis Istomin beating uh, Djokovic in five sets. He, I think he was something like 100 or 500 to one to win that match alone. You know, and he does it in five sets in absolutely one of the crazier ways you ever wanted to see it. Um, I think in that same tournament, um uh Misha Ver Misha Zverev beat Andy Murray as like a you know 100 to 1 80 to 1 pre-match and uh you know those type of things tend to happen early in the Australian Open because you have this gap in the calendar year where the previous year ends in November-ish there's nobody really plays in December and then there's a really quick ramp up to very high level play uh, before the Australian Open, they have you basically have one or two tournaments max to really get yourself into form for this. And for a player like Andy Murray, the year prior to getting upset by Misha Zverev, he played. He really wanted to end the year world number one. That was very clearly his stated goal. And he, everyone was talked about, written about ad nauseum in in uh, in the UK. And he played so many tournaments down the stretch there. Played so hard. To get that secure that when world number one he does it and then to see him have kind of a layoff where he had to regroup from how much tennis he had been playing and then coming into the australian open uh you know so quickly wasn't able to get up to top you know top form that quickly um is that sort of that does happen for sure in a normal year this year throw it all out because number one the tournament is later so we're starting here now in february so players have had a little bit of time to get their legs under them um and number two most players didn't have a full calendar year of tennis last year. In fact, everyone on tour had a light year. 
last year. You know, they're, they're all relatively rested. Everyone should be in good physical shape. You've been dealing with nagging injuries for your whole career. Well, guess what? You just had an entire perfect, uh, you know, uninterrupted um, time period to get right. And now here you go. Like this, this, you know, so they're for sure. Um, you're going to see, I think, higher quality play, you know, better, you know, better performances overall, just because these players are less worn down. There's less mileage, less wear and tear recently. Um, and, you know, the, and kind of the other aspects of the tennis calendar that make sense are you'll see guys who try to peek through the European clay swing. Right. They, they, they work, they, they're, they look at the calendar and their goal is, okay, I'm going to come into the, uh, the, the U S masters double at Indian Wells in Miami. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get what I can get there in terms of money and points. And then, um, but I'm really focusing on this European clay swing and I'm going to peak during this swing. And then whatever I can get in the U S hard court swing that comes after that, I will. And then once you get into fall, I'm going to rest and recuperate and, you know, be prepared for the following season and you can a lot of times catch those guys who are sort of on that cycle who come into australia who are a little bit more rested a little less um you know a little less fatigue in the fall and they're ready to go uh and that has been totally disrupted so i think you know i think for sure it is a much more open playing field across um you know all you know the entire men's tour than you would have in a normal year uh i think that should make in my mind at least i i'm telling myself that's going to make my numbers more valuable there'll be less qualitative stuff uh to you know off the top here even though we don't have a ton of signal sample recency uh you know recent you know results to to pick from with these guys but i i do think that in general it's going to be more of a level playing field than in a normal year and number two it looks like beautiful cool weather in melbourne and it is typically it is the surface of the sun hot in in the early part of January in Melbourne usually, and that absolutely has huge impact on the older players who play during the day. And you can almost always do a kind of you look at the order of play. You find two older guys who are in a match that's lined about fifty fifty, and it's in the middle of the day, and you're like, okay, that's going to be a hot, brutal match. And sure enough, it goes five sets. Uh, you know, the 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 winner is, you know, he's been out on court for five hours in the, you know, in 90 de 99 degree heat, 100 percent humidity. And that guy is done. His tournament is over. And you and it's 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 sometimes it's priced incorrectly, but other times, you know, you just wait for the opening number on the next one. It's like, oh well, he was playing a guy that was playing during the night. And he was in a three setter, you know, or he was also in the day, but it was shorter, you know, and, you know, those type of angles, which are usually the bread and butter of my Australian Open, I think are going to be gone this year because it looks absolutely beautiful. So this is going to be a very different tournament in terms of the overall uh, kind of who's ups, you know, upsets versus, you know, chalk prevailing like, you know, there is it's the a typical Australian Open is wild upsets in round one and two and then chalk the rest of the way. And I would guess that this is going to be a, a, a more of likely to see a chalky tournament from beginning to end. I don't know that there's many, um, you know, underdogs who have a true advantage, given that so many of the good players have had time to rest and recuperate and work on their games. And in general, if you're a player who has more money and has a better team and has a better physio and has a better training, you know, it, you know, gym at your home where you've been, you know, spending most of your time, you know, those, those type of players, I think should, the cream should rise to the top, um, pretty quickly in this tournament. Well, good weather or better weather for the players, not so good for Drew's betting out. <laughs> what, what, what does it mean for you, Dan? Yeah, well, I was going to make the point about the weather as well. So, so as as you said, usually it's so hot in, in Melbourne in, in January, but looking at the forecast, it's going to be like ballpark twenty degrees C in in in. Um... It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so, so will that have an impact on the court speed, for example? How 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 will we? ascertain that or we're going to have to look at the data for the first round for example and compare that to the first round of the year before or the year before that and stuff and we kind of make we've got we've got to see matches take place and get that data to really make any kind of assertions on, on whether that climatic difference is uh is going to be something something that is a thing or not a thing and the other the other thing that i think is really sort of unique to this tournament this year which is worth worth making the point about is that like 
every player's had to do this this quarantine coming into Australia, but they're not quite sort of all on a level playing field in terms of what they could and couldn't do during this quarantine. So some players got the ability to to practice for a short while each day, whereas other players literally didn't leave a hotel room with an open... They didn't even have the benefit of any fresh air from an open window for two weeks. So I think that the, the players who, who kind of had that little bit of time on court will, will arguably benefit in these warm-up events this week and, and, and the early rounds of the Australian Open. I mean... Coming from say Europe or the US to to Australia, awful time zones, and then having to sit in a hotel room for two weeks, basically binging probably on junk food and watching Netflix, is probably not the best preparation for a best of five sets Grand Slam. I wouldn't have thought. So so yeah, I mean, that's something I think is you know maybe something to bear in mind for this particular tournament, but. Unless you plough through social media feeds for players, I'm not sure there's like a, a clear list about which players are um, were in which conditions. If that makes sense. Well, I think Heather Watson did a, a triathlon, didn't she, in a hotel room or something like that? <laughs> in the bath and running. I think she ran a 5k just up and down to the door and back. <laughs> um, right, let's get on to the the Australian Open and the the odds that are up. Um, we I said earlier that we're not going to kind of spoon feed people who are the the picks, but it, it's good to to get your guys' insight. I think on on kind of where the market's at. Um, for the men, it's as you'd expect the the usual guys up there. Djokovic leading the way. Um, he's kind of consensus just over odds against at two point two, two point four. Um, Medvedev, Nadal, team fairly close behind, sort of five six to one range and. You could probably put Sitsipas up in that that top bracket as well. He's just over double digits in terms of price. So in terms of that sort of bank of five guys at the top, is there price wise anyone that jumps out or, or people that you just steal well away from at, at where they are in the market? <clears throat> I think the market is shaped very well, considering we don't exactly know how these top, the the second tier of guys are going to shake out in the draw. Um, it's going to be draw dependent for each of them. Uh, I think, you know, pretty clearly no, Djokovic standing alone in terms of price and level and being close to 50% chance to win is very close to my number. Um, I'm a little shorter than 2.4, which is, I think, the best price you can find market-wise right now. I'm about 2.2. Um, so I see a little value in Djokovic. He typically is the best player on tour here by far. And it's not necessarily the reason you would expect. This is his absolute ideal um, sort of, uh, it's the ideal conditions for him to use what is the greatest defense in men's tennis uh, to effectively take away the shot-making ability of every player on tour on this very fast surface. And he's clearly should be the rightful number one, you know, the rightful market favorite. And... You know he, he's going to get the best seed. He's going to get the easiest quarter, um, and he almost certainly, barring some very unusual circumstance, will be at least in the semifinals. And the question is, who does he face in the semifinals? If it's a player like Medvedev, I don't think Medvedev matches up especially well with Djokovic because they both they have a. He's got a almost the same sort of game where I will get everything back, um, but it's not quite as good. So it's almost like he's 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 at least that I've seen he's he's very similar but not quite as good at that at that and he'll probably uh, w- you know would not be expected to manifest an upset against uh, Djokovic he probably would be in the plus he'd probably be th- I would guess about three point five on the money line if they met head to head at the semifinal level um, and then you have a player like Team who could end up in the second quarter and meet you know be that would be your semifinal matchup with uh, Djokovic and Team I think has a more realistic shot at an upset against him just his style of play um and you know he might be in the plus he'd be probably about 4.0 ish head to head against Djokovic at that spot and so you're not really manifesting much in the futures market betting either Medvedev or Team right now because either one of those guys is likely going to be in the three to four ballpark if they meet in the semifinals right so that's even assuming that they avoid upset to that point 
And then once they, you know, presumably if they pull off that upset and they go to the finals, you would be facing either Nadal or the other one of Team Medvedev. And, you know, that would be a pretty close to an even, you know, that would be lined pretty close to even. Now, usually in the Australian Open, you can take some, there's some margin at the top of the market on Nadal that you can pretty much try to eat somewhere else. That is to say, he is built in usually around 20% chance to win the Australian Open, but in a normal year, he has very, he is uh, not likely to win here. Um, this year, I would say because of the, you know, the general uh, later schedule last year, um, because of the, uh, you know, he, he's he usually takes damage. He's got knee problems when he's playing on hard court through the fall. And if he plays a full fall schedule by the time Australian Open runs around, he is not ready to be at 100%. And you can usually fade him uh, in the futures market with that margin he's eating at the top of the board. This year is not one of those years, in my opinion. I think he's going to be dangerous here. Um, and I think there's probably a reasonable chance he gets a good draw out of the second quarter here. He's going to be the number two seed if i'm reading correctly um i'll have to double check on that actually i'm not 100 sure if the seating i've got is current but uh nadal at coming out of the second quarter seems likely him if you can find him in the six to one range right now that's not a bad play um i don't ultimately think he wins this tournament but uh you could potentially have him six to one come out of the bottom half be in the finals against djokovic and then uh you know that would be lined in the um, probably, let's see, I'm going to guess that'll be Djokovic minus 220-ish um, based on past matchups at this venue. Um, so having Nadal at 6-1 to one and being in that potential uh, finals matchup, worst-case scenario, is is pretty fair as far as the futures look. Um, and if something happens, if someone beats Djokovic and that's team or Medvedev, uh, in the finals, then the doll may be evens or even a small favorite. So uh, that's the of the stuff that I see market wide. In a normal year, I would never ever be betting Nadal at this tournament, but I do think six to one is a little short. I make it about four point five, uh, and you can get it right now at seven. So, and uh, is it similar sentiments, Dan, or are you going to give us some some debate and some some argument against the case? I think we're kind of in alignment through a lot of our thought processes in, in this this podcast so far. Is fact the fact that Nadal, you know, seven seven point five kind of price does look reasonably generous based on numbers wise, and and the fact you know that this is kind of a unique circumstance for the Australian Open as well. Um, I, the one is difficult one in terms of team. Numbers-wise, he doesn't convince me, but he seems to pull out these performances. <laughs> and I wonder whether the market might be a little bit influenced by um, the the US Open and uh, then coming to the uh, runner-up to Medvedev at the Tour Finals as well. Yeah. But I, I have Medvedev, not, not taking into account who they might be playing and matchups and stuff like that, I would have Medvedev rated higher than team based on my numbers. Um, and you mentioned, Ben, um, Sitsipas as that kind of the fifth player. I mean, for me, I think he's quite a long way behind the other guys still. And, I mean, I've I've looked at, say, 20 players who are around 100 to 1 or shorter in the market. And his return data is one of the worst out of those 20 players. And that's not conducive generally to success in the best of five set Grand Slam format. Because if you're not good at return and you're generally going to be playing longer sets, longer matches, and in a Grand Slam, seven matches, best of five sets, that is not going to be fun generally. And you're opening yourself up to variance and fatigue. And generally speaking, I think that those guys are worth opposing in terms of futures markets. Yeah, we agree on that. And then what What about a little further down the list, Dan? Is there anyone there that sort of might seem like a, a bit of a player at much higher odds? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, yeah. I think that <clears throat> Looking at second tier players, probably breakthrough. I would say that Rublev, who we've discussed already, is someone who 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 does have that potential, perhaps more than a lot of other players. I, I'm absolutely shocked to see that he's a similar price to Nick Kyrgios, who didn't play yeah. after he was <laughs> the last match in February last year. So, so that, that for me is truly bizarre. Um, he's a similar price as Andy Murray at one book I'm looking at right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I mean, like Ru Rublev's kind of someone who's from that yeah, say second tier. Could could Yannick Sinner kick on and really threaten the best players on tour? It was definitely possible. So I'd be looking towards the the, the younger players, the the Rublevs, the the Sinners, the Dominors, yeah. rather than the Vavrinkas and the Kyrgios's and the Bautista Goos and players like that who are, we know where they're at. We know what their peak is probably right now. Uh, whereas we're not really quite sure with some of the younger players who, who do have this upside and high potential. And I, and I think that I'd rather get, get on side with some of the younger players than some of the sort of veterans who haven't worked exposed to all nights. Yeah, and I mean, obviously not a, a pick to potentially win it, but Drew, your logic of of maybe a, a semi-final or maybe sort of a 50, 100 to one shot that could maybe get a few upsets and go to the quarters, is, th is there someone in that bracket or, or with that methodology that, that might appeal? Yeah, I mean, it's all draw dependent. So right now it's tough to say, you know, it. it I always try to pick off some prices that are just outrageous and nonsense in this time frame, and just cross your fingers that they don't all end up in the same section and that one of those guys has a chance. Um, but it is so draw dependent. But the, uh, the underlying spirit of what uh, Dan was saying, I completely agree with. After the top four guys in this market, there is a huge middle class that I don't think has a realistic shot. And they're all kind of in the four or five, maybe, you know, as, as you know, four or five percent chance to win that is probably zero. And, you know, that so there is some margin you can attack there. The um the guys mentioned of them, Demon Hour at 60 to 1 is probably the one that I'm grabbing now. I think that fair price is pretty is closer to um, 35 or 40. And draw dependent, he can absolutely get a path that gets him to at least the quarterfinals. So 60 to 1, you need him to win that quarterfinal upset, and you have a reasonable equity in that position. Um, Dennis Shapovalov is a guy that doesn't. You know, I don't shy away from it at 80 to one. He's never done it at the stage and with the pressure. And so I get why the price is what it is. But from a talent standpoint, uh, 80 to one is not a reasonable number, in my opinion. So I'll probably take a shot on that one. Um, and then in the 150 to one range, uh, Felix Auger Aliasame, 150 to one is kind of crazy for him. He absolutely has the top level that he can pull off the upset against some of the top tier guys um so again draw dependent he should be you know he should be in the 80 to 1 range not 150 to 1 um and then all of the other guys who are sort of kind of names you know i think are overpriced <laughs> so um you know the zverevs alexander zverev at 20 to 1 i think is ridiculous Kyrgios at 33 to 1 is ridiculous um <laughs> Yeah, Robert, even, even, even Roberto Bautista Agu at 100 to 1 is crazy. He usually does well at this tournament because of the conditions being so hot and he's a robot and he can play through heat for five hours and come out the other side and be fine. Um, well, that's, you know, take that one edge that he has here out of the game and now he's going to actually have to get it done with the shot making. I don't see that happening. So, um, you know, re reasonably, I think some of the other names, um, even the GoFans, the Malfis, the Dimitrovs, the Chilliches, um, you know, Berrettini, Nishikori, I don't think these guys have a reasonable shot uh, outside of, you know, blind luck in terms of the draw opening up wide open for them. Um, and so I'm, 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 I, I think there are opportunities to, to take some long shot cracks at some of the lesser known names. Well, I'll, I'm, I'm cautious of the time, but we will get onto the women and I'll, I'll have to put you on the spot. We said how difficult it is to, to kind of find <laughs> someone who could be a potential challenger, but to, to run through the odds there, it kind of tells the story that we've got a, a favorite at five to one, not, not strong in the market at all with Osaka. Um, Barty, Sabalenka, Halep, Serena Williams, about 10 others that are between sort of eight to one and 10 to one. It's going to be difficult, but is there anyone there that, that is worth a, a stab, do you think, Dan? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's it's so difficult with, with the women's in terms of, you know, picking out players specifically. Um, okay, so so my thought process is, is that uh, I want to find players who've got good, 2020 data and good maybe slightly longer hard court specific data as well and, and ideally 
someone who maybe is a little bit more proven in quicker conditions as well. So, uh, and, and that makes it really tough in itself. Um, so a couple of players that I think might be some value, uh, but really we're kind of not in a great spot in advance of the draw. We don't know, we don't know how that's going to play out. And even then I'm with no background really this year in terms of form lines it's it's so tricky um if we want a i mean i said earlier sabalenka will get a lot of market support i think based on the unbeaten run so far and and i think that, that makes her justifiably a player to beat i certainly would probably would have her as a shorter price than ash barty for example at the moment who who didn't play after the tour stopped in march but at the moment, I think Barty's slightly shorter than Sabalenka right now. Um, okay, so two names. I, I don't like it much, but I'll, I'll give them to you anyway. Um, in, in that sort of second tier of players, I, I quite like Kvitova at ballpark like 25. And of the more outsider players, maybe someone like Elise Mertens at like 80 to 1 or something like that is, is someone who, who has a little bit more upside than I think a lot of other people. There's some young players with high potential as well who could could do some damage with good draws and if they play well. Someone like Rybakina, who I think we've spoken about on previous pods before, as well as, as someone with very high potential. And and even someone like Marta Kostiuk, who who has massive upside in my opinion as a as an eighteen year old with with huge potential. Um could be someone I don't expect her to to come close to winning it at all, but someone who could easily provide a few upsets on, on route to say round four or something like that. Some uh, some predictions through gritted teeth there, Dan. I think, and I, it's it's only fair that I do the same to Drew as well before we go. So on, on the women's side, Drew, who's who's jumping out to you? Or who well, would you who would you at a push have to suggest? I love the Kostiuk shout. Seventy to one right now is wild. She absolutely has the top end potential um, to go far in this tournament, and it's been sort of the name of the game to find the next up and comer as far as price shopping goes, and in <clears throat> the women's side in the futures. So. Um, you know, that's a, that's a great one. Um, the seeding is a little tricky here. Uh, it looks like Ash Barty one seeds, Simona helped two seed. I don't mind taking on either of those two seeds in the quarter, to be honest. Um, the, you know, the price on Halop I think is a little aggressive. I wouldn't put her at 12 to one. I'd have her closer to 20 to one. Um, Serena Williams, similarly at 12 to 1, I have her closer to 25 right now. Uh, her form of late has really not been impressive on the numbers side of things and her kind of mental uh, edge, you know, the, the, just the general legend intimidation, the legend status, the legend factor that uh, Dan mentioned earlier about Federer doesn't really have the same cachet today as it did a couple of years ago. So Serena at 12 to 1, I think, is a bad price. Um, and yeah, I mean, Sabalenka at 10 to 1 is fair, but Dan is exactly right that if she gets the right draw and wins a couple early matches, that's going to get short real quick. And you can play that game and, you know, wait, you know, watch that price come in um, because she's got, she's stepped her level of quality of play up enough um, that the likelihood that she has a, a shocking early round upset here, I think, is low. Um, she's going to get a reasonably favorable draw. Her current ranking is seven or her seed is, is seven seed. So she'll be one of the two best players in one of the quarters. Um, and, you know, if she gets in the same quarter as Simona Halep, for instance, or Ash Barty or even Kennan, uh, I think Sablanka should be probably even odds to come out of that quarter. Um, so 10 to one for her right now is, is a fair look. And I, of what I've seen social media-wise, um, Vika Azarenka looks like she's in the best shape of her life. Um, she's at 18 to 1. She'll be another very popular. That number will come in also a lot if she does well early because she's such a fan favorite. People have been waiting so long for this comeback and like to see her um, win a slam again. Uh, so that's another one at eighteen to one that I don't think is is uh, that has potential to really come in uh, pretty aggressively. Similarly, Bianca Andreescu, uh, seventeen to one is a fan. She has, she has a lot of market support if she looks good. Um, so the the three prices that I think could be the 
quickly, most quickly impacted in the um, in terms of coming in are are Sabalenka, Andreescu, and Azarenka. Um, and then we haven't even mentioned the market favorite Naomi Osaka on this entire podcast. And honestly, I don't know. Ne- I never really know until you see her play at the level that is the best in the world that she's but once you see it you know so i almost want to say all this entire conversation could be for not if she shows up and she's <laughs> and she's firing missiles and you know completely unflappable in the high leverage moments of a match again then you know all but it's hers to lose and it's a very real possibility that she could be at that at that level of play um she's at seven to one right now the fact that seven to one even is your top price is crazy um and yeah if you're seeing it and if she looks on you know if she looks kind of nuclear hot like she has in the handful of slams that we've seen her win then um then set seven to one is going to evaporate well i think that is just about all the time that we've got for today and not long until the action gets underway of course and obviously i just want to say a massive thanks to to dan and drew for coming on the show and and a big thank you to everyone for tuning in as well remember to head over to pinnacle.com to take advantage of our low margins and high limits across all tennis markets and as always please gamble responsibly